Riverside. It is Friday morning, and it is time for our Friday morning devotion. Uh, usually, when I come to you, it's at 9 in the morning. Uh, but today I'm coming a little earlier because I have some things on the docket that i got to take care of um, that I that just can't wait. So we're starting a little earlier today at, uh, at just after 8. And uh, we're going to be continuing uh, looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, today, specifically, we're looking at the second half of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 20. And the passage actually is quite relevant for us today, and it's actually kind of the beginning of Paul addressing a very significant issue uh, that was uh, constantly having to be dealt with back in the first century church, in the uh, sort of Roman world, especially the Greek-speaking world, um, and frankly is still an issue we're having to deal with today. And that issue is uh, having to do with the Christian ethic of sex and sexuality. That is very much at the heart of the passage that we're going to be reading today, and for that matter, uh, the passage that is coming next week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, to give you sort of a broad overview of what was happening in the Corinthian church, and frankly, um, what was happening all throughout uh, Greek culture, because even though it's the Roman Empire, it's still very much influenced by Greek way of uh, Greco ways of thinking. There was two basically um, sort of polar opposite views of sex and sexuality that were commonly held in the ancient world around this time. And basically they went like this. The first view was uh, sex is just, uh, and sexual desire, lust, is just yet one of many appetites that the human body has. And since uh, when we get hungry, we fill ourselves with food. When we get thirsty, we fill ourselves with drink. When we feel lust or sexual desire, it's no big deal. We ought to just go ahead and seek to have sex with whoever or wherever we can with whomever is willing. And sometimes back then, even with those who were not willing, depending on the power of the person. So sex was seen as just one more appetite to be filled by much of the Greek-speaking world. This is, of course, rooted in early Gnostic ideas that what you did with the body really didn't matter. You could do anything with the body because it was just matter. Matter was always seen as inherently bad in the, uh, the Greek understanding. And so, eh, who cares? Just go ahead and relieve your body of the desire that it has and have sex with whoever. That was one view. That's the view that Paul is going to deal with today. On the other hand, when we get to chapter 7, you're going to see Paul deal with the, the polar opposite view, which was also common in some parts of the Greek uh, world, but becoming more common in the church. And that was, uh, sex is not merely an appetite, but sex is something inherently evil, and therefore the Christian view should be asceticism, that we should avoid it at all costs, that it's something that we should not have anything to do with. It's just a sign of our lesser appetite, and we should not give in to our lesser appetites. Sexual desire is no good. And so these two sort of polar opposite views that were in the culture were all, of course, being brought into the church because these are people that have been breathing the air of the culture around them. And, of course, this causes debate within the church. And so Paul is going to set the record straight. 
So with that by way of backdrop, let's listen to verse 12 of chapter 6. He begins with a quote probably from that culture and probably written in a letter to him from the Corinthian church. Quote, all things are lawful for me, unquote. But not all things are helpful. Quote, all things are lawful for me, unquote. But I will not be dominated by anything. So you see the big idea so far that Paul is discussing. It is true that as a Christian, all things are lawful for you. You are free in Christ, and Christ is the end of the law for those who believe, Paul says elsewhere in the book of Romans, and for that matter makes a big case of it in the book of Galatians. It's true. It's true. You could say in one sense, all things are lawful for you. You're really free. But Paul's qualifier here is, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. So the discussion turns from a question of right and wrong to better and worse. Uh, better and uh, not as good. It's a, it's, the question turns to, okay, yeah, you're free, but is it helpful? Yeah, you're free, but are you really free if you end up dominated by something? And we can apply this to many areas of life. Uh, I've met plenty of people that will sort of bask in their freedom, um, especially younger Christians. They might tend to uh, just be so blown away by the grace of God that they're like, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But they can very quickly end up doing things that actually don't display freedom at all, but seem to display bondage. And that's Paul says, no, that's not a good use of freedom, folks. It's not a good use of freedom. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And then Paul goes on to use another quote, probably again from the Corinthian culture. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now that quote very, very clearly illustrates this uh, sex is just an appetite idea. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food, meh, no big deal, it's just an appetite. What does Paul say? And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So now there's a total reframing of the way the body is seen. In the Greco-Roman way of thought, the body was seen as a necessary evil. We see this kind of thinking still today, by the way, when people talk about, like, my true me is just my soul and my body is sort of the prison that it's living in. That's a completely antithetical idea to Christian thinking. In Christian thinking, your body and what you do with it really matters because your body will go on to exist. Yes, it will be in a renewed form. It will be in a resurrected state, and it will be a body much like Jesus' body when he rose from the dead. But nevertheless, it will be your body. And Paul wants them to get away from this thinking that it doesn't matter what I do with my body. No, your body, as he says here, is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. How do we know that the Lord is for the body? Well, verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So just as Jesus was risen bodily, and he'll make a big case about this in uh, chapter 15 of this letter, 
so too we will. Therefore, we ought to be very thoughtful about how we use our body. Sex is not merely just some, just another appetite to be filled, but sex is something that we ought to take very seriously. Why is that? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, may it never be, heaven forbid, Paul says. Now why would that be such a problem? I mean, well, for one, it was actually quite an issue in the ancient world that a form of worship in some of these cults and some of these uh, fertility cults uh, was that you would actually go into the temple and you would have sex with a temple prostitute who was there to aid you in your worship of the fertility god. By the way, it's such a clear sign that a religion is clearly man-made <laughs> when two things are always on display. One, it promises to get you rich and successful. Two, or two, depending on the, the, uh, the cult, it basically gives you a pass to have sex with all, in all sorts of illicit ways. And this was happening in the Greco-Roman world and still happens today with most cults, and it's always a for sure sign. I think this thing was made by a dude because, yeah, we want to find ways to justify our sexual appetites. Well, Paul says, here's why you don't want to join yourself to a prostitute. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The idea is pretty clear, I think. There is something that happens in the sexual act that unites you to another person in a profound way. And frankly, sorry, um, and it really is something I'm sorry about. In our culture, we have completely lost this idea. Sex is far too often seen as just something transactional, something for me to feel pleasure. And we forget that there's a very deep spiritual phenomenon happening in the sexual act. It is not merely about the physical pleasure of the thing, but you're actually uniting yourself to another person. Of course, physically that is actually taking place, but it's also in, in a spiritual way connecting you to this other person. Paul knows this, and Paul knows that there's something specific about sexual sin that really can do uh, deep damage to a person in ways that maybe other sins might not. And so he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, there's, there's no sex that doesn't leave some sort of... Um, it doesn't leave some sort of scar. It doesn't leave some sort of mark. It's something that stays with you. It's something that goes on with you. Now, someone might say, well, I, you know, I don't know really what you mean. I don't, you know, think about every encounter I've ever had or what, whatever, and I don't feel scarred by it. But Paul knows better that this goes deeper than even what you might experience in the moment, that this is something that is hugely significant that it's such a sacred thing that it's really meant to be shared with one person and one person only, as he'll go on to tell us in 1 Corinthians 7, and really echoing what the Bible tells us throughout, even if 
the forefathers in the faith, didn't do a great job of displaying that ethic very well. <laughs> but that's a separate discussion. So Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed, flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he here's his rationale for it. Here's his rationale for how you ought to think about it. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He anchors you again in your identity, just as he's done all throughout this letter. Here's why you don't want to go around having sex with just anybody, just fulfilling this, maybe this temporary desire that you have, this lust that you're feeling, because that's not who you really are. That's not who you're possessed by. You're not possessed and owned by your lust. You're possessed and owned by the Holy Spirit. He's within you. You're his. Now, I do have to mention something here. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I have come across somebody who happens to be really in physical fitness that will quote this verse all by itself, all by its lonesome, completely divorced from the context, and will then make a case for why we all need to be hugely into physical fitness, put down the dodos, don't eat any more bacon, start eating celery, and make sure that we're in the best shape possible we can be. Folks, this verse has precisely no things to do with that. <laughs> I just have to be clear about this. It has no things, negative zero things to do with being physically fit. Now, there's plenty of reason that you should be physically fit, that you should seek to be in good shape. Plenty of reason that you should put down the donut and eat less bacon. Fine, fair enough. You just can't use this verse to say that that's what it's saying. Find another verse if you need to. Uh, but this one won't cut it. This is all about, in the context Paul saying, giving reasons and rationale why we ought to remain pure in our body and save ourselves for the marriage bed with our spouse, as he'll go on to say in 1 Corinthians 7. So we really can't use this verse as a proof text for, you know, making sure we do 30 squats a day or whatever. It's not going to cut it. Okay, so here's his rationale. Last verse here, and then we'll, we'll cut it off. Remember, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. What was the price that you were bought with? The very body of the Son of God himself. Just as Christ gave his body away for you, sacrificed himself for you, the idea is, is that you would sacrifice your lusts, your desires for your spouse and in worship to God. So he says, glorify God in your body. Remember, you were bought. That is a true statement. You are owned, possessed, bought, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So live in such a way that seeks to reflect that reality. Don't just give in to the appetites. Don't just give in to the desires that all of us will have at one time or another. But no, seek to honor God in your body by seeking to flee from that which would harm you sexually. All right, so that's the beginning of uh, sort of the Christian ethic on sexuality. Um, Paul says it's not merely an appetite. We need to seek to remain pure. Next week he's going to say, but that doesn't mean 
that sex isn't a great thing, a great gift, and can't be wonderfully enjoyed. And he'll go into that in great detail when we gather again next Friday. So, all right, that's it, folks. Have a great weekend.